Good afternoon. This is Chickie Fitzgerald. Welcome to the Executive Girlfriends Group. It is Friday, April 11th, and it is a glorious spring day here in Tampa, Florida. And what that means is that it's uh, in the 80s, and but we don't have the humidity yet. Our guest today uh, actually has been with us before, and I am just so excited. Uh, this couldn't be a better time uh, to be talking about uh, a daily guide to a healthy, happy life. Welcome, Michelle Howe. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, and it's really great to be back here again, Chicky. I've been looking forward to talking to you again. Well, terrific. Michelle, your new book is called Burden Lifters. Who doesn't need that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would agree with you. I think we, I think every woman, every man, every child I know needs a little burden lifting these days. Well, before we dive into talking about the book, um, for those guests who have not heard of you or heard you uh, on my previous show, why don't you give us uh, a little thumbnail of Michelle? Well, I've been writing for many, many years. Um, I, it's been about uh, 27 years now I've been freelancing, and I do a lot of book reviewing, so I have what I consider one of the most wonderful jobs on planet Earth of reading manuscripts before they hit the reading public and I get a chance to read through them and review them for various magazines. So I've been doing that for a long, long time. I've also been writing for parenting uh, magazines, uh, relation, relationships between husband and wife, friends, uh, parents, caregiving, you know, parenting. I have four grown children and two grandchildren now. And I oh, really, wow. uh, yeah, I've, I've done a lot of writing for single moms. And it's always kind of an interesting story that I'm not a single mom myself, and I've never been one, but... Two of my best friends were single moms uh, many years ago, and I kind of started telling their story for years. So I have like five books on single parenting, and it's not my story. It's their story. And I've, I've gotten to know so many single moms through the years that I've interviewed or have um, gotten to know personally, and I just ask them to tell me their story, and then I just convey it to the reading public. And it's mm. been one of my passions in my life because I think that's one of the hardest jobs on on anywhere for a, for a mom or a dad to be a single parent. And I, uh, that's been my passion. But in the last eight or nine years, my shoulders, and ended up having six shoulder surgeries in six years. And uh, I still have the same problem that I went into surgery for the first time in 2005. It's never corrected. And so I've kind of been uh, writing on chronic pain now because I am in chronic pain mm. all the time. And I'm writing on how you deal with that as you hit the midlife years and try to stay healthy even though you're hurting. You know, there's a lot of balance, oh, a lot of things wow. you can do to help. So that's kind of a nutshell of where I'm at, kind of at the crossroads of a lot of different things in my life. Wow. Well, that, that describes me always. I actually was the guest on another radio show this morning, and before we got on the phone, she said, Chicky, i got to tell you, I can't figure out what to talk about with you because you've got so much going on. <laughs> and uh, I, I uh, tried to distill it down for her. But, yeah, I, I'm, I'm in that same place of really having to take stock of everything going on around me and deciding what is really important and what to focus on. So focus is my watchword for 2014. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great watchword. In fact, actually that's been mine for the last, six to nine months, I stepped away from a few ministries that I'd been involved with 
because I just felt like I needed to sit still for a while. And I know you would be like me. We find it hard to sit still because there's just a lot in life that interests me, you know, and there's a lot of things I love being involved with and I love people and I got a lot of ideas, but I felt like just for my inner person, I needed to step back because there was just an awful lot going on that had been quite stressful. And that's kind of some of the things that's even included in my book where you really got to know that there's certain seasons of your life where you've got to take stock of what's happening around you, whether it's your health, your finances, what's going on at work or in your home, whatever, and and be able to reevaluate. And I think that's one of the ways we can age in the best and most healthy way is to realize you you can't always do what you did 20 years ago. I mean, you have to then pick what's most important. It doesn't mean you're less, but it means you maybe can be even more skilled and proficient at those few areas that you choose rather than being involved in 15 areas. Exactly. And I've told this story actually before on this show, but I read a blog from Seth Godin a couple of years ago, and and I I have actually probably embellished it way beyond what the original blog said. But here's how I tell the story, that there, there are two neighbors across the street from one another, and they both come out at the same time in the morning. And they they both uh, want to plant something, and so one of them gets in, you know, grabs the shovel and and grabs a, a bag of of dirt and gets in their car, and they uh, go and buy some seeds, and they are going all over town and just planting here and planting there, and you know maybe spending a little bit more time on on some locations than others, and watering some, and you know just allowing the rain to water the others, and then he comes home exhausted right and and mm-hmm. you know tired thirsty hot dirty and he looks across the street and sees his neighbor sitting under a shade tree with a lemonade and thinks i don't remember seeing that tree this morning and of course what the neighbor did was you know he maybe even called somebody to come and plant the tree for him you know i don't even know whether mm-hmm. he planted it himself but the fact of the matter is he dug a deep hole planted the tree and you know by the time the other guy gets home he's enjoying the shade and the lemonade and wow. i realized i want to be the guy under the shade tree right. <laughs> i don't right. want to be what i've been which is driving all over town planting seeds hoping that they come up driving by them and longingly look at the you know little blade coming out uh but really needing the shade so um i love how you uh begin to describe this book in in the product description which is what is it that keeps you afloat mm-hmm. well you know and to go back to your story too i think that what you just shared is so common to women especially because we hear that call from so many different people. Can you help? You're really good at this. Would you mind lending a hand? Or just our relational nurturing nature is so always in tune to someone else's need that we just jump right in. And just like that story, you know, I I know a number of women who call me and they're so frazzled and so frustrated because they're involved in way too much. Now, of course, me as the outsider, I can counsel them, you know, I can see what's going on here. You know, you need to maybe get rid of half of what you're doing so you can do the other half really well and have some peace of mind, you know, and and time for your family and and such. But they have a hard time letting go. And then, then, you know, then I get the call or four calls, can you help, can you help, can you help? 
And, you know, it is hard to say no, but, you know, I think that if everyone did their one job really, really well, everything would get done. The problem is we don't live in an ideal world and sometimes things don't get done. But I think I challenge women to ask themselves, but who calls you to be the savior of the world? You know, and if right. you, maybe you're not even called to meet that need. And I remember many years ago, a pastor of a church that we attended said, uh, if we didn't have enough people, parents or whatever, to to man the nursery, he'd say, well, folks, next week it's closed. You're going to be bringing your kids into the, the message and the service. And, you know, you'll bet every, it never happened because people didn't volunteer. But, you know, they don't right. always volunteer until they really know the, the need is serious. And I, I thought, you know, I really applauded his bravery in doing that and instead of just asking a few you know, overly committed people just to step up all the time. He was looking at everybody and saying, hey, we're a a body here and we all have to help. And I think it really blessed the people who had never served before because serving is a great thing. And it helps you get to know other people. You realize what your gifts are and your whole life can be enriched. So back right. here, so that, I'm very excited about your story. But anyway, back to my Well, and, and I want to just mention another story before we dive into the book, because as you know, one of the things I like to do is to kind of walk through the organization of the book. And one of the things I love about this particular book is whatever the burden is that you're facing, um, this book is structured so that you really could go to the table of contents and turn to depression, exhaustion, sorrow, and you can walk through those and find the one that that serves you. Or if you really are just wanting to understand how you can help the other people in your life who may be going through many of these things simultaneously, um, you know, you can certainly read it from cover to cover. But the first chapter, and it's funny because I just had this discussion with my son on the way home from school. He's 13, and we were coming up to the, the turn into our neighborhood. And invariably, we get caught at the red light. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, rats. And I'm like, Sergey, what's the matter? And he said, oh, we didn't make the light. And I said, well, you know what? I used to get upset with lights. And now I actually enjoy the break from driving. And so we were talking about just being willing to wait and to not have to be in control and that I actually like it best when I'm the last one who can't get through the light because we call that being the lead dog. (laughs) And that's kind of our, our family joke. But the first chapter of your book is about being in a situation where you have to wait. And the subtitle of this is When Inner Calm Trumps Control. So I set it up for you, Michelle. <laughs> yeah. You know what? And, you know, there's a reason why that is the first chapter of the book. It's because that has been one of my my struggles through my entire life. And the interesting part of it is that being a writer for all these years, it, not so much anymore, but when you first started writing 20-some years ago, all writers did was wait because everything went through the mail. So you'd submit a story or a book idea or even a review, and you'd have to wait for snail mail to get to an editor, for them to read it, then to snail mail you back. And it was always, my highlight of my day was running to the mailbox to see if I heard from anybody. And and I remember thinking to myself, well, I should say a friend of mine said, isn't it funny that God has put you in a place where you always have to wait? And they think it seems funny, but you know what? It's been a place where I've really learned some good lessons 
and now my kids are all young adults, and just like your son, I, our family is really active, and, you know, we'll be, in, we'll be in a car, and I can see they get really frustrated when they have to sit at a light, so I'm going to now say to them what you just said, that, you know, <laughs> it gives you a break from driving. But you know what? I've thought to myself, <clears throat> excuse me, it, you know, waiting really is a good thing, and we're all waiting for something in this chapter really details that, you know, every one of us has to learn to wait. We're either waiting for a doctor to call us back or we're waiting for maybe a friend to call us back. Maybe we're waiting for a new job. Excuse me. Or we're waiting for a promotion. Or we're waiting for God, you know, the next step. Or maybe we're waiting for a mate. You know, we're all waiting if we really look at it. So the question is how do we wait? Do we wait well or do we wait poorly? And waiting well (laughs) to me is when you're at peace inside, you know, and you really know, you know, I'm not in control because control is an illusion anyway. We can all, we can do so much. We can make all the right choices. We can, you know, be the person that honors God, you know what I mean, that walks uprightly with integrity. And you know what? So much of life is out of our control that, you know, for me, my faith um, is such a comfort because I know God is in control even when the world is going crazy around me. And I take a lot of comfort in knowing I don't have to be the one that's in control. Even though as a mom of adult children, I still want to control some of my kids' lives. I realize, you know, there's a season, there's that seasonal theme again where you step back and say, you know, I did my job. Now I'm more of a consulting person, not the person who's directing the play here. So the chapter about waiting is really near and dear to my heart because I've struggled with it. I don't struggle with it so much as I did when I was 30. It got a little bit better when I was 40, and now I'm in my 50s. And I can honestly say I've made more strides. Now, call me tomorrow when I might be waiting for something, and I'll have to pull myself back. But I think it's something women can do if they just think through, you know, what's our emotions, you know. You're thinking what you think really is who you are. And if you dwell on the fretfulness of having to wait for whatever it is, you know, it, it really takes you captive. And no one wants to live that way. Right, right. Well, and, you know, I tell you what, the the whole notion of just being at peace and letting peace be your guide, which is, is kind of, um, again, when I look at how I live my life, I pray every day just for peace and clarity of vision. And that doesn't mean that my life is going to be peaceful. It means that I can have peace in the midst of, uh, you know, of the chaos that often does impact, uh, you know, my life. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people don't, um, you know, they don't ever get to that place. So um, so talk to us uh, about, I don't know if we need to go through every chapter, but why don't you pick out the ones that, that really stick with you, that you've had the most feedback uh, from people about what has helped them, um, mm-hmm. Go for it. Well, one of the chapters that meant a lot to me through Chapter 5 is depression when changes lift emotions. And I have never been a person who struggled with depression until I had my first surgery in 2005. And I look back now, and I think it was the perfect recipe for what I went through that summer. Um, I had been, my husband had been caregiving for an, a, a relative who had been very sick and who had passed away. We had several other relatives who had died, so there was real loss there. 
we have been going to a church that we were really involved with for like 22 years, and we left. And um, my kids were all teenagers at the time, so they were dealing with a lot of um, uh, of their own stuff, just, you know, a lot of teenage stuff, that just a lot of pressure. And there were some other changes that were, were quite dramatic in our lives. And then I went to a surgery, and I remember thinking to myself as I sat in that waiting room, maybe this isn't the best time to have a major surgery. But I had never had one before, and I was in mm. so much pain, I thought, I can handle it. I've handled everything else. And I remember right. thinking that thought, well, the surgery went fine, but afterwards, I wasn't sleeping for weeks because of the pain, and I'd never gone through that before, and I really fell into a depression. I was weepy, I lost weight, I was like just a mess all that whole summer. But and I and it was frightening to me because I'd never been a person that I would have thought would have gotten depressed. I mean I was always right. well, you plow right through, you keep going. But what I realized was my body said, I'm done here and my body had given me all the warnings and I did not take it. And all the emotional stress, it all caught up to me when my physical body went through a major surgery, and I don't think we realize how much stress, you know, a general anesthetic puts on a body. We don't, we don't ever hear about that kind of stuff. And I've also started writing about that because it's huge when you go through a surgery. What your body, you know, on your organs and your whole body itself, what happens to you when they put you under? You know, your body has to recover, and it's just takes a lot of energy, a lot of healing, and a lot of time. Well, that summer, I really read a lot about depression because that's kind of what I do. If I'm going through it, I start reading everything and get my hands on. But the best thing that ever happened to me during that summer was I, my best friend called me one evening and I was talking to her and I was kind of weepy. And I'm not a weepy person. I don't cry a lot. And so she right. knew I was really feeling it. And she said, you know, I know that you feel like this is never going to get better, but it will. And she said, I am going to believe in you and believe this is going to get better until you can believe for yourself. And, you know, just those words that, that I knew somebody was behind me, mm. somebody that was going to stick with you me. Know, I, I felt something lift, and that was the turning point for me. So when I wrote this chapter of this book, I talk about if you have a friend who's depressed, a family member or something, sometimes you don't know what to say to them. I never knew what to say to somebody. I mean, I said, I would pray for you, I would, I would help you, I'd listen to them, but I didn't know. But I read a, a really great book during that time, and my friend, of course, her conversation and her, her care for me over the months, and she called in to check in with me, and it was just basic things. And I started to write about it, and I thought, you know what helped was um, – Getting into a routine. You know what? I didn't feel like it, but I got up and walked every day. I didn't feel like mm. eating, but I ate anyway. I didn't want to go to bed at night because I didn't sleep well, but I made sure I was in bed like at 1030 every night. I mean, you do the little routines that slowly as your body starts to heal physically, you find your emotions perk up too. And it took time because I think my body was really depleted of a lot of things because I had been under so much stress for probably two years before that surgery. So this chapter is kind of like a a how-to primer on, you know, if you've got a friend who's struggling, there's just a few things you can do to help them. And right. and also, it's really hard to, to love somebody who's depressed because they don't respond in a normal way. I mean, you might really love on them, and they might look at you blankly like they're not getting it. But you know what? That's part of depression is you're not feeling anything. So right. I think the, the inappropriate response is appropriate for someone who's depressed because their feelings are all messed up or they're numb. And I really encourage people to 
hang in there with the people that you love because it won't be forever. And, you know, when you get them on the road to recovery and you keep loving them and they make good choices as well. And part of getting, I think, getting out of the depression is making good life choices. And I know I had to step back from something in order to get better. And even after I got better, I knew in, you know, in the coming months and years, if I start doing too much, my body, there's like a little warning that goes off, like too much, too much, too much. And I pull back. Right. So that, that chapter's been really personal. And a lot of people have said, wow, that's been a, you know, kind of an eye opener for me. Mm. Wow. Um, one that catches my mind, and it happens to be Chapter 2, is, is uncertainty, risking discomfort for the sake of another. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just talked about decision-making, and, and sometimes you can't be sure. Um, but you really, what you do know is you can't stay still. You can't stay where you are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, tell, tell me what's behind that chapter. Well, that chapter, um, again, is, uh, you know, this whole book, I suppose, is super personal to me because I've either gone through it or it has. So it's, it's always kind of tugged at my heartstrings, and I think it's common to all women. Is I was reading um, some kind of a book study, this has been maybe five, six, seven years ago, and a woman was there, and she was in a really terrible marriage. I mean, it was just bad, and I, I know, knew her well, and she sat there, and she just really... Her, she just shared. And, you know, it's really scary, to be honest with people, because, you know, you want to share because you need help. And yet, you know, you always wonder, did I say too much? You know, often when people share with me, you know, I find they call me back the next week. I'm sorry, I said all that I said. I'm like, no, 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 it won't go anywhere, and I'm, I'm praying for you, and I want to help you. But I think we have this idea that we have to be okay in front of everybody. But my experience has been, when one woman, like this woman I'm talking about, is honest, it gives other people the courage to be honest, too. And the light right. goes on in a lot of people's you know, eyes, and they think, mm, I'm not the only one. I mean, the big lie is, I'm the only one who feels this way. If anyone right. else knew what I'm struggling with, you know, it's that. And it's so, we're all the same on the inside. But in this situation, this woman was sharing about her, her um her marriage, and no one said anything. And it happened to be a time when I was really frustrated with my husband, really frustrated. I felt legitimately, he probably felt he was legitimately frustrated with me, but I was just so discouraged. And I sat there, and I was burying her heart, and she's crying. And I had this nudge where I just had to say something. And I didn't feel like my marriage was in the same place as hers, but I just spoke up, and I said, I know exactly how you feel and feeling that way right now. And she looked at me with gratefulness in her eyes because I got it. Now, we were able to talk afterwards and hopefully we encouraged each other. But I taught, I wrote about this because I thought, you know, we, when we step out to help other people, it is a real step of courage and uncertainty because you don't know how other people are going to respond. But there's no reason not to go forward and do the right thing. And for me right. that day, it was the right thing to speak. You know, and I could have made excuses in my head. Well, my marriage isn't about to break up or this or that. But I knew in my heart that woman needed somebody to say, I get what you're going through. And to to love her and to love on her and to make her know that she's not alone in her struggle. So this chapter is kind of about, you know, we are all presented with opportunities every day to meet the needs of other people around us. But we have to be listening and paying attention, not to what people say, 
but to what they're not saying or to how they're right. saying it. Cues are all around us, and body language is so much often more important than even what the words are. That you know, we we get it. You know, women are are in tune with most other women, and I, I just you know challenge ladies to step out when they see a need, and most of the time it's going to be uncomfortable. And that's the other thing is you know you you just got to get used to living a life of not being comfortable all the time because your comfort level is not the standard at which you have to govern your life. You govern your life by what you need to do, and that's you know right. stepping out, making a difference you know, being that need and needing it. Well, that leads right into not the next chapter in the book, but uh, another one that jumped off the page at me, Chapter 17, about caregiving, sacrificing for another's comfort. Um, This time last year, uh, my mother-in-law started going in and out of the hospital, um, you know, and they couldn't figure it out, and her... her, um, Sodium levels kept uh, spiking, and which caused all kinds of other weird things to happen that actually looked like something different than what it actually uh, ended up being. And she ended up um, being diagnosed like three months later uh, with having stage four pancreatic cancer. And of course, mm-hmm. you know, within less than 30 days, she was gone. And uh, you know, so I, uh, I I will not claim to have selflessly done any of this, but I. Her care fell to me, even though it was my husband's mother. Uh, she lived right across the street from us, and, you know, it, it just, uh, I was the one who was here, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so this is a common thing that people, particularly of our age, because I'm 50-something as well, um, you know, it is not unusual, uh, whether it is a friend who has been diagnosed with cancer or, uh, you know, a parent who is just aging, Alzheimer's. I mean, I've heard so many stories uh, from other women in the Executive Girlfriends group where all of a sudden their whole role has changed. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's what this was actually about, but uh, that's certainly what, what resonated with me. Yeah, you know, this chapter uh, actually was about one of my closest friends who, and this is a story that will go down in history, is she, my friend, a single mom, the one I had written about for years, had had three teenage children at the time, and her parents were elderly, quite a, quite much older than her. I mean, she was one of the youngest of six, and they needed help. So they had agreed together that they would join households. So they actually ended up buying her childhood home, which was a big, nice, beautiful home. Together, she moved, she sells her small home, moves into the other house, gets in there, gets settled. Her parents change their mind. So here's my friend stuck with a house that she can't afford, because her parents were going to move in and she was going to take care of them along with the children. So she had to then sell the new house, move into an apartment, because that was all she could afford at the time. And I will tell you, she did everything selflessly, but it was a a trauma to her and her Mm. kids. And um, to this day, her mother is still alive. She's still caregiving for her mother. But you know what? She's... uh, it's a challenge every day because her mother does have some dementia and she's got Alzheimer's and this kind of thing, but she won't move out of her house. So my friend sees her every day. But I, I realized when that scenario happened, I saw my friend's whole life change within a day. And I thought, talk about the uncertainty of life. Who would have ever guessed that the parents you said you'd take care of would change their mind after you sold your house and moved into the house? It was such a mess for so long. Wow. And then we had our own situations of caregiving. Our, as I said earlier, our elderly neighbor who was uh, a distant relative, but he was a bachelor. He'd never been married, and he didn't have any children. 
So we, it was us, so I understand your position. We, it fell to us to take care of him. And within a five-year period, he went from being a very healthy man to having had um, three types of cancer, open-heart surgery, diabetes, Parkinson's, and more. I mean, I can't tell you all the things that were wrong with him. And he was in and out of the hospital, in and out of um, uh, nursing care facilities until he got back home again. So we really understood what caregiving was. And then he started losing some of his faculties, and he became very nasty to us which was really hard for me. And as you said, you know, it's a struggle to take care of people when they're treating you well, but then when they mistreat you, well, that's mm-hmm. a whole other thing. So this chapter was kind of a kind of a warning, not to not caregive, because I think we need to do that, but I think we right. need to do it intelligently because we, we made a lot of mistakes that first round before my husband's uncle died. We really didn't do it well. And then, like, two years later, his dad got esophageal cancer, and within five months, he was gone. We did it so much better the second time around. So I think in the book, it was kind of a, you know what, we didn't do it right the first time, but we learned our lesson, and the second time, we made a lot of other changes about how we did the caregiving, and one of the biggest things we did was enlist the help of a lot of other family members and get a calendar going so that it wasn't Mm. all on us. And I think we don't realize how much of a toll it takes when you are the sole caregivers, even for somebody you love so much. When you already have your own life in its full, and then you add getting their groceries, cleaning their house, taking them to doctor's appointments, getting their meals set up, and then if they get sick, you know, then it adds another layer. And if they have animals, there's just, you know, you think you're really taking over somebody else's life. So this chapter is kind of the warning of, you know, you can go from a minimal amount of caregiving to full-time care, and you've got to start setting things up when you see it heading that way ahead of time. Don't wait until you're in a crisis where you're, you know, crying at 3 in the morning saying, I can't do this anymore. And you're right, the women in all of us in our 50s, really kind of be looking ahead if we know that those are going to be our role with some family members. Right. And if you can afford it, buy long-term care insurance because it can pay for the person to come in. We were fortunate that we had done that and we were able to get, you know, CNA uh, or, or at least home health care workers who could just sit with her. And they they went to the hospital with her even when she was in the hospital and sat with her. Mm-hmm. And uh, it made just all the difference in the world. Well, you know, the time has just blown by so fast. I just want to share with our listeners some of the other chapter names so that they can know uh, what kind of a resource this book can be. You talk about discouragement, identify the blessings amidst the bruising. Uh, chapter 4, loss, letting go of that which holds me captive. You already talked about Chapter 5, depression, when changes lift emotions. Chapter 6, exhaustion, rest for what wearies me. Boy, that's going to hit a lot of people. Chapter 7, Sorrow, When Love Triumphs Over All. Chapter 8, Giving Up, Friends Who Remind Us Why It's Never Okay. You alluded to that a bit. Uh, Chapter 9, Hopelessness, How Today's Challenges Fortify Me for Tomorrow. Chapter 10, Confinement, When Opting for Less is Way More. 11, Regret, When Mistakes Transform Us. Uh, 12, Disappointment, Harnessing Expectations to Fit Reality. Chapter 13, Broken Dreams, Piercing Together What Matters. The next one, Doubt, When Lack of Trust Protects Us. Then Failure, It's Not About Success. 
uh, chapter 16, Workplace Where Gifts and Talents Shine Bright. It just goes on and on. If, 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 uh, if you haven't had one of these, you're going to have them soon. <laughs> we talked mm-hmm. about caregiving, which is next, and parenting, speaking up to influence a life, financial setbacks, finding freedom in our material world, relocation, downsizing to upgrade for a better quality of life. I think I need to read that one. Uh, we're ready for that. Uh, divorce, when I do's don't last, and we all know someone who's struggling with their marriage right now. Uh, the next one, retirement, changing one vocation for another. Uh, career choices, it's never too late for change. I will vow for that. I'm already in my third career. Uh, physical illness, when our weaknesses make us strong. And again, you shared your uh, surgical experience. Relational stress, when emotions become obstacles. Aging, there's an art to doing it well. Child rearing, what letting go looks like. Uh, relationships, blessed be the tie that binds, house and home, what hospitality looks like, and lastly, time, living in the moment. Michelle, uh, we could have done, uh, it looks like we could have done 30 shows and had enough uh, (laughs) to fill uh, 30 half-hour shows. So what's next for you? Well, my next book is going to be coming out in a few months and it's titled Faith, Friends, and Other Flotation Devices. And it's Mm. all about uh, friendship and how women can encourage each other, challenge each other, uh, just be there for each other in every season of life. And uh, it's going to be funny, it's going to be heartwarming, and it's also going to be very crap. That's going to be coming out soon, and then I'm going to be on to writing another book about how our culture affects the decisions we make and how it affects our faith, and how it affects the people that we influence around us. So that one's going to be, um, I'm really looking forward to getting into that one this summer. So. Mm. Well, Michelle, I so appreciate your time, and I, I am sorry we, we don't have time to dig uh, more deeply. I've got lots of things I wanted to ask you about, so I'll just have to crack open uh, the book uh, to those chapters that relate to what uh, friends and family that I have are, are going through right now. Uh, again, the book is called Burden Lifters, Every Woman's Daily Guide to Healthy Living, or a Healthy, Happy Life. I'm sorry, got that wrong at the end. Michelle, thank you so much. Can you uh, let folks know where they can follow you or find more information about the other books that you've written? Sure. You know, all my books are available at at Amazon.com. It's just the easiest way to get a book, I think, nowadays is where I buy all my books. And people can go to my blog. I blog a couple times a week, and I love to interact with my readers. And it's michellehow.wordpress.com. Or you can follow me on Facebook or Twitter. I'm active with social media all the time. So I'm always happy to interact and answer questions and just um, get new friends. So I invite people to do that. And I want to thank you for having me on today. Oh, thank you so much. And, you know, again, we... we uh are really all about what you're writing about in your next book, and, and that is being there for each other uh, on the Executive Girlfriends group, uh, no matter what stage of life you're in and what you're going through. Uh, and, and I know this group has just meant so much to me over the various stages I've been going through in the last five years. So it is terrific to have uh, guests like you who are so willing to be transparent. Uh, we really, really do appreciate that, Michelle. 
Well, thank you, and I, I really enjoyed our time together, and uh, I just wish you well in all your new business endeavors, and I'm sure we'll be in touch. Well, thank you so much. And if our listeners would like more information about the Executive Girlfriends Group, we are on Facebook and also on the com. Thanks, Michelle, and I hope you have a great weekend. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye.